0: The following presentation was recorded at the 2013 Conservative Anabaptist School Board Institute. More information at thedocforlearning.org. Two years ago, or a few years ago, I must have made some comment along this line, and some, some people suggested that this should be unpacked further, this, uh, this topic. Maintaining stability through change would be my subtitle for this address. Maintaining stability through change. I was reminded just on Thursday, we did our annual, with our juniors and seniors, we do a volunteer activity each year for actually two days or two different places. Sometimes we go to retirement homes, sometimes we go to a a rescue mission, and Thursday we went to what was known as Water Street Rescue Mission in Lancaster County, which has a history of about 100 years. I think they call themselves Water Street Ministries now. And We sorted some linens uh, that are gifts to them, bed sheets and so on, to give out to uh, to the, the poor. And we had a tour then of the facility. I had been in that building maybe 10 years ago and there was a large thrift store on the one floor of this big brick building. There's no longer a thrift store there. It's gone. But instead in that area where the thrift store was, there is now a medical clinic where you can people can go and actually get dental work. There are volunteer nurses come there, volunteer doctors. And the lady who gave us the tour pointed out that they no longer do thrift stores, but they, instead, they are now, they're working much more with people who come for help. They, she said there are always uh, presenting issues. There's always some underlying calls here, and they try to come alongside the person and help the person. They have programs there to help them uh, get more training for a job if they need it, and also to uh, find housing, but they try to move them on and get them on their own feet. And as I thought of this topic, I thought, here's one more example of an organization that has for many years wanted to somehow reach out and help the the, uh, the poor and impoverished in, in the community. And their goal is the same today that it was 50 or 60 years ago. But the as you walk in that facility, the same things are not happening. The procedures have changed, and they perceive somewhere along the line that if they just continued having the thrift store and giving people handouts when they come, why somehow they were not appropriately meeting their their goals. That's one illustration. Stability. Stability, if you check in the dictionary, would be a constancy of character or purpose, of steadfastness. There is stability. The character has not changed. The purpose has not changed. There's equilibrium. We know where we're going and we're going to that goal. It will not change. God does not change. You want to see some change? Look at the way he dealt with people in the Old Testament and the New. He says sometimes, I do a new thing. The ears will tingle. Procedures might change. But his purposes never, ever change. He changes not. A few verses that were familiar to us from Jeremiah, we read, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the eternal path where the good old way is. Then walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. As I speak here, I'd like you to notice the recurring terms. I will occasionally be using the word maintain or stability and also the term change or a new thing. And here we're asked to look for the good old ways. Now, the ways and the procedures are not always the same. The ways are deep underlying. The ways of a man's heart, God knows. We don't even know our own heart, but God understands the way of the heart. And the ways need to be constant. But the procedures that we actually follow to walk in those ways can look drastically different in different times. And it takes discernment to know whether the underlying ways have changed and an improper, which would be very much of a problem, or whether it's simply a different procedure. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11:2, 2, I appreciate and commend you. I'm reading from the Amplified here. I appreciate and commend you because you always remember me in everything and keep firm possession of the traditions. And then in parentheses, the substance. You're keeping the substance of my instructions just as I have verbally passed them on to you. The substance of what you received, you have, and you're holding on to it, and it's still there. I commend you for that. And then we read, I think, in Proverbs, Consider well the path of your feet. Ponder the path of your feet and let your ways be established and ordered aright. In everyday life, we must cope with circumstances. Whether it's a wind, a a storm, a detour on the road, a depression, if there's a detour you can actually be driving east when you should be going west. But if you stop and ask someone, why are you going east? Well I'm headed west. Well there's a detour. But our ways have not changed, but the direction we're driving at the moment really looks like we don't know what we're doing. And so there are depressions, there are setbacks, there are losses and that require constant adjustments. We know this in the business world in farming. In order to keep to our purpose, in order to reach our destination on a journey or raise a crop for profit or operate a business successfully, failure to make necessary adjustments in procedures results in a big change, which would be a failed business. Although your great-great-great-grandfather may have used a cradle to harvest his grain, if you insist on harvesting all your grain with a cradle, you may be put out of business. Furthermore, you would not be doing what your great-great-great-grandfather was doing What was he doing? He was using the latest cutting edge, pun intended, tool of the day for his harvest. Um, If the cradle, if he were here today, if he were living today, he would probably again choose the latest cutting edge tool, a modern green combine, but maybe not, not necessarily he might have discerned along the way that maybe he should get out, get out of farming. That's, that's also a possibility. But a good question to ask when making a decision would be what would great-grandpa do if he were here today? Considering how he had did in his day, what would he do if he faced today's situation? We cannot assume that by repeating the procedures, the methods of our fathers, we are thereby continuing in their ways. We may be, we may not be, not necessarily. We must stand by the roads and look and consider where the good old way is and then walk in it. What is the substance? Ponder the path. Excuse me. Bible characters themselves furnished numerous examples of people who shared a root purpose of fearing and serving God and walking in the ways of righteousness and nevertheless if you look at how they lived their lives and what they actually did they were drastically different Abraham was a nomad Abraham left his country and went out and traveled across the country as a nom- lived a nomadic life much of his life Moses, the meekest man, he he leads a group of people through the wilderness on a 40-year journey. He and Abraham's lives were drastically different in what they actually did when they got up in the morning. Joshua, who had another spirit, that is, but he had a spirit of God, he was a a warrior and led the people. When he got out of bed in the morning, he did something quite different from what Moses did. And David also, down the list, just consider how they actually lived their lives, what their job description was in terms of procedures, David, God said to him, no temple for you. You do not build a temple. Solomon comes along, you built a temple. It's time now for you to build a temple. Daniel, I won't say go into politics, but you're appointed to be the ruler next to uh, next to the leader. And so each of these men, though we all know, we read their lives and we take instruction because they were committed to following God and honoring God and, Lord, where am I in my time? How do I live my life? And then you look through the Hebrews list. Just look at the men in Hebrews 11 and how, how they all stood. These all died in faith. They all stood, but it's quite a catalog of differences in drastically different uh, ways of living and, uh, <clears throat> and doing They had quite a variety of victories. Some uh, had their dead raised and so forth. And also quite a variety of sufferings. All of them needed to live in times and adapt by seeking the right way. By seeking the right way. And so in Ezra we we read, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. And that's what we do here today. We seek a right way. Uh, Actually, we know what the way is. We want the way of the Lord, but we're looking for the procedures, the activities. How do we do this for us and for our little ones? Now, I tried to simplify a, a, a little diagram for this. Anytime you simplify something, obviously there are things that don't fit. But here is a question for us to consider are uh, or, or our things we do, are we bringing a change, or, or do the things we do offer stability? Now, there are four possibilities here. Uh, the one is that sometimes if we change our procedures, sometimes if we change the procedures, the way we do things, by doing so, we actually do introduce a change that we do not want. We actually lose something. In a business, it might be going out of business. In a church or the school, it might be introducing something that brings uh, apostasy, that brings uh, a sin, that brings things we don't want. And so we do not want to introduce changes that actually bring a change from the purpose. Other times, we need to change our procedures in order to maintain stability and maintain a needed stability now note there that if we if we bring introduce a change why it might bring an unwanted change <clears throat> if we change our procedure sometimes we have a need of stability're in a detour and we take the detour why we uh, we get there quicker if you're like, I've done already, and you think, well, maybe I can find my way through here, smell my way through without following the detour signs, you end up wasting time. And then there are other times that uh, change, that continuing our procedures, continuing on, just continuing the way we're doing, actually introduces an unwanted change. Sometimes we aren't aware of this until we realize something, something is going on. I just... uh, example recently, uh, somebody pointed out to me that the uh, the friends, the Quakers, they did not like when the English language changed and we lost the use of thee and thou for the singular person. And everybody in English just used you for both singular and plural. And that's not very personable to do that. Je- uh, yes, Jesus didn't do that. The King James Version points out when Jesus talks to everybody, he says, Peace, I my peace I give unto you, everybody. But when he talked to Peter and to Thomas, he said, "You know, thou art uh, Peter, and uh, and to thee." And the Quakers said, "You know, we should maintain this. This is proper. When when you talk to an individual, you say thee. When you talk to the group, you say you." And so they continued this, and it was a good thing. But you know what? He pointed out that to this day, if I say thee and thou, who do you think of? You think of the Quakers, do not you? And you know, it's lost its it's lost its and it has ended up becoming a strange marker. Now that's not really there's nothing wrong with using that's not a bad thing. It's certainly an illustrative example. And then the fourth possibility is that sometimes and this is the easiest by the way, sometimes we can actually continue our procedures and maintain stability. Isn't that wonderful? We can just keep things the way they are. And we have stability. And we we all, at least when we get older, we like that. We like that. Because it's, it's easy. Do it like you did yesterday, and you get the same results. And they're good ones. But sometimes, if we do it like we did yesterday, we don't get the same results. And then we wonder. We wonder. So uh, looking at that, I'll just leave that on a bit here. So. I'll give a couple uh, allude to a few examples from history one historic change that was made to keep the way was translating the bible from an inaccessible language into a language of the people so they could read it for themselves and didn't have to depend on the priests however you know that some people didn't like didn't like that <clears throat> but Luther translated it into German so the people could read it, Tyndale into English so the Plowboy could read it and understand it. And the King James Version, believe it or not, this this is early modern English. This is not old English, it's not middle English, it's early modern English so that we can read it. Now, language does change over time and so there are some updates needed in order to maintain that. Now, those who maintain stability those to maintain to stability, or at least work on maintaining stability um, by continuing a procedure, by, main, by continuing to use German-only translations, or perhaps even King James only, can gradually introduce a change by having kind of a special language. You get yourself in a position where you have a religion language, and then you have Life language. And there was a time when that was not the case. When when the Bible was first translated, it was translated into the life language of the people. And then we could speak it in our language. Now, as time goes on and things change, if we continue, and so there there are valid reasons for introducing the change of sticking to a language that becomes archaic. Just as there are valid reasons for introducing a change that seems new in procedures, there are also valid reasons for saying we are going to continue even though we recognize that this will introduce a change because there are other parameters, there are other things to consider. But we do need to recognize that it is bringing a change. So if we decide to stick to German for our services our singing and our preaching, and use English in all of life. We at least need to recognize that this is a change, and but we're going to deal with that. Now, all of us grew up in some way and are walking in a way, and our children are developing ways. It's our responsibility to hand over, as best we can, the ways we have found life-giving. Tradition is really a handing over, the tradition is kind of a handing over, of uh, to the next generation and this handing over includes things that you can't hand over with just words it includes patterns of thinking patterns of behavior customs attitudes beliefs and values by the very nature traditions must be lived out in order for the next generation to apprehend them they can't simply be delivered through talking or teaching or reading. One person has commented that tradition actually means a management of change. The very act of handing something over itself is a change. There's going to be a different person now speaking. There will be a different person in charge. When you walk in our school now, our school at home, there's a different person as principal, and that is a change. And so, Lord, inevitable changes in terms of, uh, of course, people moving on and so as we seek stability in changing times, it's important to consider some of the basic uh, root beliefs of our people, such as following Jesus, taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously, living out our faith, the brotherhood of believers, submitting to the group, not being individualistic, two-kingdom kingdom concept. These are things we want to hold firm to. We don't want, want to change. How do we, how do, we do this? Someone has pointed out that the historic confessions of faith of the Anabaptists are not creeds. They never attempted to sit down and list all the things that we believe. Many of the things they assume we believe This, But if you look at those creeds, you know, at those confessions of faith, they all reflect the times in which they were written. They were responding to something of the time. So you read the Adortrecht, and they talk about oaths and shunning. You go a few years ahead, and you read the 1921. Now they need to talk about the scriptures being reliable and trustworthy because they're, they're responding to some pressures of the times. You come up to 1963, and they talk about Christian spirituality. And so there's a sense in which the very <clears throat> Confessions of Faith themselves are, are adapting somehow to the pressures of the times. A few mileposts in church history. Actions that were taken to maintain stability or to keep the faith. The Swiss, Swiss brethren, our ancestors, did a big change. They broke with the the uh, magisterial reformers to have a, what we call today a free church. And another big change to maintain. They left. They came here, and we're here today. They settled. They became prosperous, the quiet in the land. Another change occurred. Unwittingly, they didn't plan it, but it is a change, and we reckon with that today. Another change over the years is in hymnology. The Althman itself, the very idea of collecting martyr ballads and doctrinal uh, hymns, the Althman, I understand, is about half martyr ballads, that is stories of martyrs, and about half of it Uh, instructional poems, this was a new thing. This was a change to collect these, print them in a book, and use them in your Sunday services and sing these songs for a good purpose. For a good purpose. You sing those songs. Now, the stable, quote, stable practice of using exclusively a book like that for several centuries introduces a change by limiting a congregation to singing only those songs. Additional new hymns that may serve to keep the faith amid the pressures of a later century are really excluded from use. Uh, One wonders what the compilers of the Alhambin would say today to that. I don't know what they would say. This continued practice brings a change. While this is true, I understand there are valid reasons to defend the practice for other reasons. Uh, many Mennonite and Brethren churches, including our own, when they changed languages by, drop, by uh, dropping German and adopting English, this was a big change. Many uh, also dropped their German hymnody, just jettisoned the whole package and adopted English hymnody. The hymns of Watson Wesley influenced the church, along with the the traditions of Men of Simons. This brought change, much of it helpful, although one could wish that more effort had been put into translating some of the original hymns to prevent the change that's introduced by cutting off the people from the hymnody of their forefathers. In our own case, there was some translation of some of those German hymns. In the gospel song era... Many hymnals incorporated a high percentage of these experiential, quote, what Jesus did for me songs with a correspondingly lowered percentage of traditional hymns that focus on God and Christ. This change brought a change, a change that could soon have a generation growing up thinking that gospel songs equal hymns where the gospel songs are the hymns of the faith. John Overholt labored to counter this change with his 1972 Christian hymnary, which offered to the church a a balanced collection of hymns and gospel songs, which included numerous translations of martyr hymns, including hymns from the Owlsman. Without his labor of love, many of us would be more out of touch than we are with the hymnody of our forefathers, For an excellent introduction of how one may need to introduce change to maintain stability, read Roman numeral page 6 in the front of this book sometime where Brother John points out how that he gives advice on how procedures in worship may need to change in order to maintain stability. And he says things like this. There may need to be there may be a need to read entire stanzas aloud before singing them. There may, need to be, there may be a need for informal classes, for a mastery of both text and music of our hymnals so that we can worship in faith. He's saying to have proper worship, there may be a need to be some change in order to maintain that. I offer that to you as one example of someone who's thought about this and said, you know, in order to continue what you want to do, you may need to make an adjustment over here in the way you do. What else has been done to to Trudit, to hand over the faith? I'll never forget forget, uh, John Ruth talking one time and holding in his hand a martyr's mirror. And he said, you need to pick up this book and feel the heft of this book in order to get a feel for the scope of the burden that was in the hearts of some of our forefathers. As a spirit of rebellion against the British king took hold in the colonies and war clouds loomed, Mennonites were concerned. They feared that merely continuing their current practice, the current methods of handing over their teachings to their youth, was going to result in a big change that they didn't want. That is, their youth would not share... Their parents' concern, their parents' convictions regarding relationships with the governmental powers. The martyr's mirror was inaccessible to the young people. It was locked up in the Dutch language. How could the elders maintain the faith by acquainting their youth with the story that belonged to them so that they could read it for themselves? The Dutch Mennonites weren't interested in funding such a project. And so the largest publishing venture. In the colonies, before the revolution unfolded at Ephrata, as 15 men labored full-time over three years to produce a 1,500-page volume. In today's expense, that would have been at least a $1.5 million project, a big change, a big project in an effort to maintain Stability. Such a thing had never been done. In the late 1800s, other changes were introduced in the Anabaptist churches to maintain the faith. This is where it gets quite interesting. English preaching. English preaching. Now, not all did, and some still don't, because a change in language does involve a change in thinking. Another new thing, Sunday schools. Not all churches did, some still don't because they're concerned about a possible head religion, and also because of the other associated Protestant innovations that this smelled like, and so not all adopted this. Another change was what they called protracted meetings, revival meetings. These were something new, but it was introduced as a way to bring people to the church, Not all churches did. Some still don't because they're concerned with what they might call religious enthusiasm. Another change was outreach missions in the late 1800s, foreign missions, city missions. Not all did. Some still don't because they're concerned with other things that came with that, although many people do support relief work. In 1893... Jonas Martin led a division, which is a change in the Mennonite Church, to maintain an old order that would not adopt the changes of English preaching, Sunday schools, protracted meetings, and so on. But soon another change surfaced, another challenge surfaced, and that was technology. Phones, cars, tractors. And so another division occurred as one group saw the car as opening up a way of life that would no longer be old order. They did not want that change. Both sides in the division were coping with change. One accepted the new way of life, that is the new procedures brought by the car, in the faith that the way could be maintained regardless, even with the car. The other kept the older ways while renting the service of motor vehicles as needed. Both accommodations, note, to to change, have served the groups for almost a century, and both those groups are still thriving in numbers. Another interesting story is the the turn-of-the-century Bible conferences. And uh, I'll read here from Harold EMP's historical journal. And they, at the turn of the century, someone wrote, The Mennonite Church was losing many of her people to other denominations. John Kaufman said, what are we doing for our young people? It's not enough to have Sunday school and English preaching. We must also new change. We must also have a series of meetings and indoctrination to indoctrinate our people and go to work in earnest. And so these thrived through about the 30s. Now let's go for a few minutes to changes in education changes that resulted in the birth and development of our Christian day schools. In general, our people in this country have been satisfied with the local schools for 200 years, even with the drastic shift from basic literacy of the 1800s to the progressivism of the early 1900s. Although some of the subjects were seen as unnecessary, my aunt commented that if students learn about other places in geography, next they'll want to go to these places. I'm not sure what to say about Bible school. Uh, but these were tolerated in view of the fact that since they were local schools, the community ethos and the strong moral training prevailed with the result that the influence of these small local schools was not perceived as a threat. A change in the local school's curriculum was not perceived as introducing change to the church or community ethos. Now, another change to maintain stability. I'm pretty much speaking about eastern Pennsylvania here. I don't know about the birth of schools in high as much. One of the presenting issues facing the Mennonites during World War One was patriotism uh, and after World War One. In 1928 Mennonites in Delaware started a school over the issue of their children being forced to salute the flag. By 1946 there were 28 parent or patron owned and operated schools mostly in southeast Pennsylvania. Uh, They started them to avoid things like patriotism and the progressivism in the other schools, the kind of the child centered deweyism of the public schools and to maintain the identity of their people. In Lancaster County, those schools include names like Locust Grove, Conestoga, Effort, Weaver Town, West Fields, Quaybills, and so on. And so the Christian Day School movement, this was a movement, this was a new thing, was promoted in church literature and teacher workshops and parent public meetings. I attended a few of those in the early 70s. But there was limited support for those schools in those days by the church at large, Many conservative churches opposed them because they were seen as one more example of the introduction of new trends that were putting an increasing strain on the church identity, trends which led to the divisions of the 1960s, and that's a whole other story. It's a whole package of things that was happening in those years, and these schools were seen as part of that package, and so the conservative people said, no, no, not with our children. While their supporters championed them to maintain Mennonite identity, others saw them as a threat to church identity because of the progressive ideas and the type of often college-educated Mennonite teachers who were being hired from places like Goshen or EMC. Their opponents feared that the changes introduced in these schools would also threaten to change the church in the long time. They said, this is going to bring this, and we don't want any part of that. Interest in opening new schools like these waned as the church grappled with many issues regarding practice, procedures, practice in the 50s and 60s. But then big changes came in public education in the post-World War II years, including school consolidation, one teacher per grade, special art classes, compulsory age raised to 16. The order-order groups resisted two basic elements of this. One was busing to larger schools, but the major, major one was sending children beyond grade 8, beyond age 14, because they thought that this change of sending children to school would be a real change. They were afraid that this was this, that it would create a a new environment that would work against what they wanted to give their children at the very formative ages of 15 and 16. In Lancaster County, many public one-room schools were closed and sold. They were bought by Amish and operated by a local board, often hiring English teachers. They continue to this day. Fathers were fined and jailed for refusing to send their children beyond age 14. Pennsylvania accommodated by providing the three-hour vocational program at home. In Wisconsin, a case went to the Supreme Court. Notice the language of the Supreme Court. They understand change. They did then. They held unanimously in favor of the Amish in 1972. This is my first year of teaching. This is current events now. The Supreme Court said not all beliefs uh, I'll just jump in here this is Supreme Court writing in their in their uh, unanimous decision two two judges two justices abstained the rest were unanimous the Amish way of life is one of deep religious convictions that stems from the bible it is determined by their religion which involves their rejection of worldly goods and their living in biblical simplicity the modern compulsory secondary education is in sharp conflict with their way of life. The Supreme Court said this would bring a change to them that would change them as a people. We recognize this and so we're not going to require that. Interesting language. In this case, the court recognized that attendance in high school would introduce change in the Amish way of life that would, in fact, change them as a people. From the late 60s through the 80s, the Christian school movement, the Christian school movement mushroomed with about one per uh, day opening nationwide, much of this because of what was happening in the public schools. During these years, most Mennonite groups began their own schools, both to avoid the influence of the public schools and to avoid the drift of the larger Mennonite church schools, making a change to begin a school was seen as necessary for the stability of the church as part of the tradition. To continue attending public schools would, by default, introduce a change in the environment in which the children were nurtured and trained. And so, here we are today. Although some of these groups don't support a meeting like this, that represents people from various groups we are con- uh, because they're concerned that fraternizing with brothers from different groups may introduce a change that threatens their identity. Another change involved production of Christian school curriculum. This was a new thing. The concept of Bible integration for every subject was pursued. Publishers begin development of curriculum to help the church maintain stability by offering curriculum materials that support the beliefs, practices, and values of our churches. And so today we have Rod and Staff Christian Light. EMP, and others. Note, though, that some people resisted all this Bible teaching because they feared it would go too much to the head. Another another change for stability was the founding of CMTI in the mid-'60s to avoid the changes being introduced by ideas shared in the more liberal Mennonite Institutes. I attended CMTI since 1971. While its purpose has maintained Uh, has uh, remained constant, it has changed drastically through sheer size. One has a quite different experience in attending now as compared to the 70s. And so the committee grapples with with what changes are needed to maintain a right way for that institute because of the sheer size. Another change that was introduced in education was the Protestant curriculum, 1970s, ACE. This was a franchise form of working through paces at booths with teachers being monitors and helpers. It offered to pastors a way to open a Christian school in their churches with minimal investment in money, energy, time, and space. The material was literally and philosophically red, white, and blue. As the only realistic option for small schools in outlying communities, many Mennonite and Beachy schools adopted ACE. Many ironies abound as we consider how groups grapple with changes in order to maintain stability. While the liberal Mennonites wouldn't consider using patriotic Protestant packets in their schools, seeing them as being quite subversive to being Mennonite, some conservative Mennonites use them as the only practicable curriculum uh, for one teacher to manage many grades in a small school, believing that the school's spirit its teachers, and other factors influencing the school are enough to offset the problems with the curriculum. Recognizing that hundreds of Mennonite schools were going to adopt the packet curriculum, Christian Light, who had already been working on textbooks, took up the challenge to offer a packet-type curriculum to help avoid the change that would be brought to the church through Protestant curriculum, Christian Light arranged with another Protestant package, packet producer, AOP, to reprint and market their materials. They intended to eventually rewrite the whole curriculum, which they're still at today. Another recent change introduced to maintain stability is the birth of this institute, CASPI, in 2007. We started a new thing to help you in your core purpose of working together as Anabaptists should in seeking together a right, a right way for the education of our children. When this meeting no longer serves its purpose, it should be discontinued. And so there are ironies before us today. Some require a change in our procedures to maintain stability, uh, to survive as schools, to maintain our integrity, or even survive financially, or to keep parental support. They beg a response. If we respond by changing something in our methods, we could possibly maintain the stability that we desire through needed adjustments to reach our goal. That would be this one. Or we could introduce a change that works against the ways of our people. We don't want to do that. Would be the top one. If we respond by continuing the way we're doing things, we could possibly maintain stability by continuing an effective method and avoiding trendy innovations. That would be the bottom one here. Or we could introduce an unintended change that actually works against our goals, and that would be this one. And so we need to, in the issues we face with the continuing use of Protestant curriculum, um, parents shifting back to public education in some communities, difficulty of finding teachers, economic realities, technology, coping with technology, the special needs students that are seem to be cropping up among us. And young families, are they supporting us? What are the young families saying, what are we saying? We, are, we need to do a hard look at whether some procedural change needs to happen in order to maintain stability to keep the way or whether we can continue as we're doing. Our fathers responded to situations by creating the schools that we have. What would they do if they were here today? What is the situation today? How do we respond? What would they say? If they, the people who started the schools and set up, what would they say if they faced the issues we face today? Which things, by continuing, will introduce an unwedded change? Which changes maintain stability? What continued practices will maintain stability? And what changes must we avoid? In all cases, let's ask, what way of thinking produced our way of life Considering how our great-grandparents adapted, what would they do if they were faced with today's circumstances? What are our young people saying, and what is the Lord doing, and what is the Holy Spirit saying to us and through us today? Thank you, Jonas. Much, uh, a lot of fodder there for what we're going to be doing now, which is uh, discussion. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit thedocforlearning.org.